We're all healthy and together, and I think we're living in a wonderful time. Do you really feel that way? The 80s are a wonderful time. I'm in the 80s myself. My golf score, that is. Slicing that old We have an awful lot to be thankful for. Well, the old gal's right about that. <laughs> Grandpa, wait a minute. What about all those good old days of yours? The ones you're always raving about. <laughs> More outdoor recreation can be found at River Country, Disney's version of the old-fashioned swimming hole. We want to first entertain, then inform and inspire all who come here, and above all, to instill in our guests a new sense of belief and pride in mankind's ability to shape a world that offers real hope to people everywhere in the world. my friends and welcome to the WDW radio show your Walt Disney World information station I am your host Lou Mangello and this is show number 199 for the week of December 6th 2010 we'll turn back the clock and continue our Epcot retrospective series as we journey aboard my Walt Disney World Wayback Machine to 1982 and earlier We'll look at the design, creation, and development of the universe of energy. This unique pavilion addressed important issues that remain so to this day and incorporated technological advances that continue to impress and delight guests as well. We'll talk not just about its history, changes, and upgrades, but the future of the pavilion as well. I'll have a few announcements and play more of your voicemails at the end of the show. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the WDW Radio Show. Epcot Center celebrates human achievements and innovation born from imagination. It is a showplace dedicated to entertain, we hope, with a purpose. When Epcot Center opened on October 1st, 1982, it was heralded as unlike anything else on the planet and something that only Disney could create. From desolate Florida swampland, once again rose a fanciful place, this time grounded in reality with a focus on our future as a united people. And as part of that departure from the Magic Kingdom rose structures and pavilions 
that were unique in design and important in content. While maybe not what Walt originally envisioned Epcot the city to become, it was nonetheless a place where his philosophies and goals were realized, a place where people could be entertained and maybe even learn something along the way. And while public perception may still sometimes reverse those roles and goals, many of Epcot Center's original pavilions continue to inform, educate, and entertain to this day. And almost three decades later, many of those original technologies utilized or even created for these pavilions continues to wonder and delight millions of people from around the world. And this week, as part of our continuing Epcot retrospective series, we'll look at one of those original pavilions whose message continues to be relevant and important, maybe even more vital to our future than it was when the pavilion first opened. So we'll look at a pavilion that's unique in design, technology, and history, the universe of energy. And joining me this week is a man who can hear the heartbeat of a universe teeming with force, Ryan Wilson of the Main Street Gazette and contributor to Celebrations Magazine. Ryan, buddy, welcome back. It's great to be back, and we're going to end up singing, aren't we? I will not sing, but I'm sure I will... I will quickly mouth the words to uh to songs that i continue to to look like you man i'm sure they are prominently displayed and played on the ipod uh, yeah absolutely and and none more so than the day that i was getting ready yeah absolutely um you know thank god i'm married now because if a girl ever came into my car and saw nothing but old school disney music on it they <laughs> it would really make dating difficult probably so Truer words have never been spoken. <laughs> but, you know, you and I, look, we've talked about this one for a long time, and, and I've wanted to do it because, you know, I think this is an important pavilion. And I think maybe, like I said, maybe even more so today because of the energy crisis and what we see is coming in the future. And I think, too, you know, Universes of Energy sort of has this bad rap. It's sort of the, the red-headed stepchild of Epcot. It's, it's been t- known as too a- academic and too boring and too educational. And, and I disagree. I, I don't think it's the place to take a nap or cool off. I don't think, Ryan, that it is the, it is the Epcot Center equivalent to the Hall of Presidents. No, it's most certainly not. And you're right. We do have things today where cars nowadays, they're looking at new energy uh, methods we know that eventually it's going to run out, and energy was universal energy was looking at it thirty years ago for us, and it is it's it's a message that's even more critical now than it was then. But it is it's, it's tucked away in a corner, and and people kind of want to just go there when they want to take an hour long nap. And that's for a lot of people. That's you know they talk about the Hall of Presidents that way, or or even still to this day the Carousel of Progress. It's a place to get cool. If your child has to go to sleep, you take them in there. And I disagree. And, and we'll talk later on about our feelings. And I have young kids that actually enjoy Universe of Energy. But let's go back. Let's talk a little bit about the history and sort of the genesis of the Pavilion because I think it very much kept in line with the goal of a place where. Disney and their partners could demonstrate some of the and really sort of have these almost proving grounds for new technologies and prototype concepts and a place where people could see this quest for practical solutions to needs that are not unique maybe to us in the United States, but us as a people. So the idea of for a pavilion based on energy clearly was a no brainer. 
it was one of those first concepts that they that they immediately gravitated towards with Epcot Center. You know, energy. It's they, we were just coming out of the energy crisis. It was going to be a, a hot topic for years and decades, and even until today, going on. But it was. It was going to be like a focusing focusing point because even before you had Exxon's involvement, they really were looking at one specific type of energy in like a solar kind of a pavilion. Absolutely, and it's you know, it, it, like I said, it sort of keeps in with that forward thinking systems and that and that hallmark of what Epcot Center was. It really, and like you said, you see it sort of right from the outset. You don't even have to go into the pavilion because you see these solar cells on top. You see this practical application of solar power, and we'll talk about how that's utilized in the attraction itself. But I think, too, how the message was presented was important, because if you think about Epcot Center in 1982, some messages came across in different ways. They presented some with humor, like Kitchen Cabaret and World of Motion. Some were more dramatic, like the American Adventure. There were real-world practical examples. This is one. The land is another one with the real working greenhouses, people seeing these technologies in action. Uh, I think things like the seas were maybe a little bit more provocative. But energy took more of an informational type of thing. And I think that's maybe why it's always had this reputation of being so very academic. And especially when it first opened, what led to the changes in some people's minds was, was kind of boring. And it is. I think part of it was that there's so much information about energy. You're not talking about one tiny piece of the aspect. You're looking at the whole universe of energy, you know, whether it's solar, wind, you know, heat, uh, fusion. There's just so much to cover that it did. It, it, there, there was a lot of information to pass on, and it came across in an academic fashion. But there was so much more to it that once you start getting under these layers – just wealth of enjoyment from this pavilion. Yeah, and you mentioned sort of this central theme that they were going for, and it's because of that that, you know, look, we, we see concept art that evolves throughout years, sometimes decades. Universe of Energy, the Energy Pavilion, was one of the few original Future World pavilions or Epcot Center pavilions that, A, remained in its original location, B, sort of had the same shape, and C, sort of... The, the the functionality was such an important part of it. That's why the location and the positioning was key because you're right. It was originally intended to be specifically a solar energy pavilion, which was going to have this solar dish as, as sort of the, the center of it. Right, and it was going to come down through the middle of the pavilion, and you would see it on different levels as you made your way either through the walkthrough section or on the ride section. But that sun aspect was always there, so immediately – they found the best positioning for the pavilion in the, in that southern area of Epcot Center where it would catch the most sunlight. Yeah, this the the design of the pavilion going back to maybe early 78 or so, the design was a little bit different. It sort of had this semicircle of solar panel, panels that kind of reminded me of a, a giant amphitheater with a central tower in the middle. But this solar collector that you said was going to go through the center of the pavilion, unlike the solar panels that we see now – really was more decorative uh, and illustrative, not really functional, but it was going to show how these photovoltaic cells, which we now have on the top, can convert the light directly into electricity. And again, all these things sort of led to the genesis and the change of the design into the building, sort of this more rhombus type – rhombus. There's the, see, I learned something in high school. But hey, there you go. <laughs> so <laughs> – um, 
But it did. It sort of changed as the idea from the solar energy pavilion changed. They originally talked about having a different ride system completely, something more like a, maybe an Omnimover system where there'd be track switching. There, would, there was going to be a walkthrough aspect of it as well. And they changed to this sort of moving theater, which was really heavily influenced by things that they saw at the 64-65 World's Fair. And they were. These vehicles were going to be more on a train system where they were all connected, as you would think of as a typical train or wedway people mover, one of those things where they were all connected to these, you know, and I know we'll talk about it later, these almost almost guideless systems of these of these traveling theater cars. Yeah, and, and the moving grandstands were originally sort of showcased during the World's Fair and something called the American Journey. And I think that led to the change, and, and I think they also felt the other system was a little bit too complex with the walkthrough and the ride switching and the track switching. And I think, too, when Exxon came on as a sponsor, we've talked about this in the past, the importance of corporate sponsors to these pavilions getting off the ground and why some didn't, why some World Showcase pavilions never did. The focus changed um, a, a little bit, obviously, as well, away from solar to a more general concept of all forms of energy, but they wanted to still incorporate these giant scenes from the cinemas to the 3D dioramas, etc. And it was it was one of these pavilions that it was the critical components came from these expos and world fairs, and from the sponsor in this case Exxon. It, and in all of Future World, I can't think of a better blending of the of these two elements to create a really a seedless pavilion dedicated to a single topic. Yeah, and we'll talk later on about sort of how that extended beyond it as well. And Exxon did a very good, a very um, visible extension of that beyond the pavilion, like so many of them did as well. Um, obviously, the pavilion opens with the rest of Epcot Center October 1st, 1982. It is sponsored by Exxon. Uh, way back when, there actually used to be a VIP lounge, like a lot of these pavilions have. There was an entrance to the right of the main entrance. There was actually an upstairs viewing area of the dioramas. Obviously now with no sponsor, um, that is not there anymore. But unlike today, Ryan, except maybe in the, the height of the busy season, when this opened, this was actually a very, very popular attraction. I can remember seeing lines just, you know, right where now we know of Wonders of Life. It was beyond that. It was just going forever for in people just wanted to get into this ride it was it was highly touted highly anticipated you know Exxon was right out front they knew this was going to be a hot topic and people wanted to see what was inside and I think too there were different elements that were attractive to people um, for some people it was the kids going to see the dinosaurs I think for other people and, and maybe this is a good time to talk about the building itself was very attractive you know as you came in on the monorail and you saw all these these solar panels on top, you couldn't help but be intrigued by what you saw. And from a tech geek perspective, the building itself is almost as complex as the attraction inside. Because unlike other buildings that really were just sort of a framework or a shell, this one served a functional purpose, again, because of those solar panels on top. And, and you had it even, you know, on the, like you said, on the monorail, you had these, these photovoltaic cells that were really drawing people in. They wanted to see how functional this really was. And from a walking around perspective, they had created this sense on the front with all these mirrored tiles of this constant energy in motion 
sense that things were actually happening. And yeah, it would draw everyone from every corner of Epcot. I know this is not going to come out right, but as you came through Epcot, uh, either walking or especially if you took the monorail, Epcot was full of weenies because weenies are these visual landmarks that draw you in and you can't help. Like you said, you see these solar panels on top. You see this glistening, you know, round cylinder of world of motion. You see this giant, you know, water tank for uh, the seas. You see these, you know, beautiful, um, you know, clear pavilions and these pyramids for universe for, uh, sorry, imagination. You can't help but be drawn to all them. And again, this building was huge. It's 440 feet across, 290 feet long. At the rear, it's 60 feet high, so it's wider and almost as long as a football field. And I always kind of got the sense, and maybe mistakenly so, that it kind of like this was a giant sedimentary rock sort of pushed up out of the ground with all these layers to it. And again, there was that sense of motion to it as well. Yeah, you could totally see it as a rock being pushed up out of the ground. Even the sign out front looked like it was being pushed, like a crystalline, you know, well, crystal being pushed up out of the water at, to present the Universe of Energy name. It did. It had this element of this earthy element of energy, of rock, of it comes from where we come from, you know, to it. And it drew you in. And part of it was the angles the building had to be on to, pre- to present those tiles to the sun. And part of it was just really brilliant design. Yeah, and there's 180,000, were, I should say, because a lot of them are gone, these mosaic mirrored tiles on the outside. So as you're coming around again on that monorail, you can't help but look at this. And and if you're a photographer, you actually had some great opportunities for reflective shots of the monorail passing by overhead. But it, it, it was beautiful. And again, just the size of it. Remember, you know, you're talking about a space... It's about 105,000 square feet of interior space. It's about six and a half football fields. You look on top of the building, you've got these 80,000 photovoltaic cells, these solar panels. That's two acres of space. So the pavilion clearly, and we'll talk about why, I mean, is huge, very much sort of that weenie that draws you into that corner of Epcot. Yeah, right. And, and going back to the weenies, you know, they, took, they, they clearly took what they had learned from Disneyland, the Magic Kingdom, and putting a weenie in each land and just filled the park with these weenies, like things that you wanted to see in future world and even beyond in World Showcase, you know, with the Tory Gate, with the Pyramid in Mexico. They, 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 had, they had mastered the art of drawing people in and they used it for all it was worth in Epcot. And, you know, in researching this and thinking about it, too, um, Disney was brilliant in the design because it wasn't just functional. It didn't sort of convey a certain message, but there was clearly this this influence. And if you look at the universe of energy from overhead, uh, either on a map or Google Maps, whatever it is, you'll see that you can sort of break out a square to create the shape of the pavilion's footprint. And that square theme carries through into the interior. We'll talk about things like the radox squares and the projected images and the tiles outside and the murals at the entrance, the mirrors that were inside at one point. This this idea of the square um, really carries through from the exterior all the way into the interior of the building, really sort of subconsciously. But if you kind of look at it, you see uh, how they carry that completely through. And it's one of these almost these paradoxes of space where you have all these squares, but at the same time, you know, 
the symbol for universe of energy were were these radiating circles and you know when we get into the theaters you know the way the way the the mirrors were used and the films were used to create these 360 degree um, experiences you had this blending of the circle versus the square and it was it was really really just an amazing design yeah absolutely and and maybe let's sort of walk our way into the pavilion because you made me think that as you enter the pre-show area there is that giant red and orange and yellow tile mosaic and actually if you still look one of the few places where you can find an original epcot center logo that universal universe of energy logo is still there in in the middle of all these red square tiles is that round sort of um you know growing circle shape yeah the, and it is it's one of those few symbols that's left you know you can still find the land occasionally the seas occasionally but it is it the universe of energy has never totally abandoned its its icon and i love its placement there in the center and then you have that beautiful tile mural with which is one of my favorite stories in all of Epcot Center, which is, you know, it's the sun radiating out. And way down the far left or far right is a very small white, basically pinpoint, which is to represent the earth in comparison to the size of the sun. And it's just one of these you are here moments. And it just it totally bowls you over and prepares you for what's coming next. Yeah. And I think that's a great thing to point out for people to go and look for, because I think 99.9% of the guests don't know it's there or probably say, oh, look, they forgot to color in that one little red tile down there. So. <laughs> but the the original pre-show was, I think for a lot of people, what, really one of the most memorable parts of the original universe of energy, especially to these early Epcot enthusiasts. And we talked about the the Radoc show. And it's, it's Emil Radoc, who is a Czechoslovakian filmmaker, creating something that I had never seen before. Um, he had done it in 1967 for the World Expo in Czechoslovakia uh, called the Diao Yak 10, but really was this kinetic mosaic and this incredible sort of dimensional moving, like I said, kinetic screen. Yeah, this was, you know, I came as a kid to Universe of Energy for the dinosaurs. But after my first viewing of this pre-show, this is why I came back. You know, it's this incredible 90 by 14 feet screen with a hundred resolving revolving triangle panels that could be turned to any different angles to create trees or to fold out and watch the waves go. It was with a reflective surface on one side and non-reflective on the other. It just created these brilliant, brilliant images in this concept of space that I had never seen before. Yeah, again, we go back to these squares. You see these square panels there that really aren't squares. They're wedges. Think sort of a you know a pizza wedge, but um, with equal sides that could rotate around the central axis independent of all the others. So you'd have one turned half sideways, one turned to the white side, one to the black side, and they could face out, they could stop on an angle, and the film that was shown on them through the five projectors, which are sort of hidden in the back, really made for a dimensional experience. And I think a lot of people, especially the first time they saw it, you know, you sort of had that wow moment because it, you just expected to see sort of a normal pre-show with a regular film on it. it you're right. And they created almost this 3D effect without having to wear the glasses. I mean, I can remember from my own youth just seeing like the triangular hillsides with trees on them and then folding in on the spaces above them were fire and then fire engulfing the whole screen. And then with just a flick of a few panels, you had trees barring in on the sides and it was just miraculous in the way that they that the master computer pulled these five screens together to to form all of this 
Yeah, you're almost able to appreciate the pre-show on a level beyond the message of the Energy Pavilion, just in sort of a, a tech aspect of watching this happen. But the message that was there was sort of an energetic circle of life. You know, energy is never destroyed. It's new energy is not created. It's sort of just moved into different uh, matters and different forms. The universe we know is one of dynamic forces. Its heartbeat sending a constant flow of energy coursing through the vastness. This energy is never destroyed, nor is new energy created. But energy is perceived in different forms. Within the atoms of all matter, on a level most infinitesimal yet most powerful, is nuclear energy. And then, of course, you end off with, and if you feel like breaking out into song, feel free, the memorable song, Energy, You Make the World Go Round. The first, the first of two great songs from this pavilion. <laughs> But you're right. You know, it covered the ingenuity of man turning from fire and wind and water into all the other kinds of energy and energy replacements we've figured out since then. Um, and it starts out. This is where Exxon comes in. You know, first thing you see is this is the Exxon Tiger running towards you. So they wanted to make sure you knew up front who was you know footing the bill and who was was presenting this to you. Yeah, definitely. And you know, it's interesting because uh, it's not like. Exxon, it's not like you can walk into the gift shop at the end and buy Exxon products. It's just sort of that uh, it's showing their message and, again, what they were doing to move forward, technologically speaking, not just trying to sell you gasoline uh, on your way back up I-4. But the interesting thing, too, is the pre-show area was huge. Uh, it, it held about 600 people. You could almost make an argument, you know, Ryan, this was one of those original Cueless cues. You don't really realize that you're waiting because you've got this pre-show. But as you walk into the attraction portion of um, Universe of Energy, this is really where you got to stop and take a look at the technology itself before you even get through the the theaters and the dioramas because these ride vehicles are, are true technological marvels. And this is what I was hinting to at the introduction, something that was introduced in 1982 continues to be pretty much the same as it was then, but amazing to this day how these actually work. You're absolutely right. And you, you, when you first walk in and you look at them, it just looks like you have a bunch of bench, bench seats with closed-off doors if you're not understanding what, what's happening. But with these ride vehicles that are using the energy, you know, part of the energy presented from the sun, from the photo, photovoltaic cells to a you know, wire that's buried in the ground to move them through these scenes without a driver is is pretty spectacular. Yeah, and, and not having the driver was something that Disney wanted very much from the outset. So they were able to develop this technology. Again, we talked about these photovoltaic, these solar panels on the roof. They produce a maximum of 77 kilowatts of DC or direct current power. They're able to convert that into an AC current, uh, enough current really to think about sort of powering 15 normal size American home, and they use these 
to recharge these cars that have eight lead acid batteries in it. Think, you know, a derivative of a car battery. Mm -hmm. And they charge them in a very unique way because they don't necessarily, you don't take each car and plug it into the wall, but they're charged by these plates that are embedded into these turntables underneath these two rows of three cars across. So on these turntables that are about 80 and 91 feet wide, respectively, 80 tons each, they rest on these airbags that they inflate. Again, this is amazing in and of itself. These 80-ton turntables rest on airbags that can be inflated and deflated uh, so there's no friction on the surface so they can move these with one small motor. But more importantly, Ryan, they transfer the power without any contact to the vehicles themselves. There's this electromagnetic field, so you could basically touch it and not have to worry about getting electrocuted, although all this power is being transferred. And think about things like the great movie ride. Uh, Twilight Zone Tower of Terror has another sort of more advanced derivative of this as well. But how they take the solar energy, they convert it, and are able to transfer it to these batteries, again, still to me, and maybe I you know, read too much Popular Mechanics as a kid, is just fascinating. No, it absolutely is. You know, to put it in terms that people would understand now, you know, we have phones that will charge when you just place them on the pads now. You don't have to plug them in. You don't have to you know, have a wall charger. It, this was light years ahead of its time because you could. You could touch it. You weren't going to electrocuted. The cars were running. It, it is. And, you know, to, like you said, for, for, for kids who grew up with popular mechanics, you know, it's still fascinating that it's still being used. It's still being utilized. It's being reinvented. It was just that far ahead of itself. And if you look at how these cars move, remember, these these cars are huge. Uh, Each one holds about 97 passengers, so they're very, very heavy. And if you look down at the ground, you're not going to find wheels. You're not going to find a track. You're not going to find a pulley system. They follow a guide wire, an eighth-inch thick guide wire that's embedded in the floor, really pretty much invisible to guess that controls the speed and the direction of the cars. But the other thing, too, we talked about how when you first get into this original theater, you're in two rows of three giant moving theaters each. The cars are able to move together as a whole. They're able to split apart and sort of become a train as you go through the dioramas, uh, rejoin again at the end uh, to keep in what is going on at the screen. That in and of itself, too, is amazing. And again, in a way that I've only seen Disney do. And and the other thing that we haven't really talked about is that they they moved effectively silently. You could not really hear them. Occasionally, you would pick up a hum from the batteries. But generally, this was a silent, you know, everything else you could hear. But the cars moved silently and uniformly throughout the attraction, again, without a driver. Yeah, and the way that they were able to... Um, and this always fascinated me as a kid was, all right, still to this day, how they were able to move you from theater to theater, from scene to scene, which you don't necessarily realize is as you're watching these uh, initial uh, cinematic, the, the films that are going on on these three 70-foot wide screens, they lift up into the ceiling and you go into a second theater or you go into the third theater after the dioramas. And these giant soundproof doors these 92 feet wide 12 inch thick soundproof doors come up behind you if you're in the final car you can turn around and sometimes almost seem 
they lower into these slots in the floor. So they're flush when they're lower. The cars can go right over. Um, it's just amazing. It, and it, it's uh, how it sort of transports you from theater from, to theater and scene to scene without actually going through these actual porters. It also allows a second show to be running at the same time. So while you're in theater two, another show could be coming into theater one. There is no sort of cross of any sort of sound or light or anything like that because of these doors and because of these curtains. You're right. With these four soundproof walls, you had two whole shows going on at the same time, which is great considering you know, how long the show actually took to go through. But you didn't even realize you, know, you would spin on these turntables as you were watching these films and the curtains would come up and the, the screens would move. And it was all just seamless. And some of it was done with the animation that we'll talk about with the, with the way they bled into the scenes that we were looking at with the dinoramas. And it, you would turn on these tables and you'd go into new scenes. And it was just a master stroke of, of an attraction of putting together this, this route. And I think people, when they look back at Epcot Center when it opened, they say, oh, you know, which was the most impressive pavilion? Which had these great technological advances? And you could break each pavilion down and make an argument. I think people, you know, might not consider universe of energy, but you've got these solar panels, you've got these vehicles, you've got these turntables. Remember, too, when Epcot Center opened, they created uh, somewhere between 15 and 20, I think about 17, specially created these large format films. Universe of energy had four of those. They had the largest multiplane and computer animation sequences ever made for Theater One. Uh, in Theater 2, they had these three 70-millimeter screens, 210 feet wide, 30 feet tall, uh, really a width that was wider than normal human per- peripheral vision, except maybe my mother's. So even on the films that you might have sort of not necessarily considered, they had to do a lot of technological advances and sort of pushing the envelope in there as well. And it's like you talked about with the the film in theater too they had, they had to create this 550 pound rig that had three lenses synchronized to focus in on mirrors to get the actual the actual film they wanted and they brought back enough footage that they could have made a film the length of gone with the wind for just this one film in this one theater they clearly really wanted to bring an emphasis to the to this energy message and you're right people may look at the land for for its expectations of horticulture or the horizons for bringing it all together or imagination just because it was so whimsical. But the fact is universe of energy brought a lot to the table when it came to Epcot center. Yeah. And even as you went through the dioramas, um, incredibly, incredibly detailed. I mean, you know, you think about before we can get to the animatronic and dimensional aspects of it. Even now, if you go through, Sort of look beyond uh, what's right in front of you. Look at the landscapes that were painted by the Imagineers. There's this 515-foot-wide backdrop, which is able to sort of morph as it goes through based on lighting and projection. So they can project the stars and the moon and then have a daybreak and sun and clouds and storms and lightning and... They painted this actually over at a, an MGM Studios soundstage back in, in California and brought this out here. But what too, Ryan, it's it still this pavilion brings is like Spaceship Earth, like Horizons, 
it brings you a multi-sensory experience. So especially when the uh, pavilion first opened, you were able to feel the heat. When you went into the diorama sequence, they had heaters that were on. There was mist. There was rain over by the Brontosaurus. Now, not there anymore. There was wind. They used the smellitzer. You had the smells of, okay, it's not oranges, but there were swamps. And you had that sulfuric volcano burning and the fog on the ground and bubbles and volcanoes. Lots of kinetic, lots of movement going on. Rocks and trees and the streams and the dinosaurs. And I think that combination of the lighting and the ambient and positional audio and the moisture and the wind and the temperature takes that to another level and I think, too, is underappreciated. Again, we talk about the smells and you think of horizons and you think of Spaceship Earth. I think it very much is underappreciated at Universe of Energy. Absolutely. You know, and you had – and they did it in such minute, brilliant ways like the, gelat- the gelatinous substance they put in for the volcano that you could see flowing down the hillside or like you said, the sulfur or the gust of water, the green grass – and they did it even scene by scene where you weren't – you were seamlessly moving you know, it, through different epochs and different ages and time was catching up to the dinosaurs. And you didn't even realize that you had gone from a lush green environment where everything was warm, it was safe to this very volatile, very, very you know, hot, smelly kind of end of the dinosaur's age. And it was. It was it, just an experience unto itself to, to have all of these different aspects beating down on you, whether it was – Smell, taste, touch—you you had it all in this, and it's one of the few pavilions that you really did have in Epcot that had everything. Yeah, and, and you know I've talked in the past about educational opportunities in Walt Disney World. I think this is, especially in the diorama sequence, is a great educational opportunity. You know, you mentioned you're passing through many different geologic periods, uh, going over 300 million years. So you go through the Triassic and the Jurassic and the Cretaceous period because they need to make you understand that you are traveling through time. You need to understand that this passage of time has to take place in order to create these fossil fuels. And they do it in such a brilliant but subtle way because a lot of it is done through simple lighting. You know, it's so well-timed that rises and, and falls as you move through the different scenes. You know, I mentioned before these these portals as you go through in a lot of attractions or even through lands like the Magic Kingdom that are physical archways bringing you from scene to scene. It doesn't happen here. It happens all simply by light and by sound and, like you said, even by the smells. Yeah, and you have things like, you know, when things become critical and things are, are becoming a bit, pardon the pun, rocky for the dinosaurs, these rocks are, wob- are wobbling off of hillsides. And the lighting just, you know, whether it's dramatic or soft, it does. It, t- it takes you through the entire period where these fossil fuels were, you know, all this pressed matter became what we would know as coal or shale or oil. Later, it took all this time, and that's and that's the real story of the dinosaurs. And the dinosaurs are really just there to to mark the, the era, right? And and you know, you're very much like me. We're very much about pointing out the details, and so many of the details almost seem to be overkill because most guests don't see them. But again, here. Disney goes through painstaking research, and we'll talk about the changes that they make later on, for the dioramas specifically, um, the, the dinosaurs, even the plants, and the sort of the, the type of fossils that they would leave to make them be as realistic as possible. And they have uh, animatronics that go from 
you know, a, a large snail to these giant millipedes. They have a T-Rex, eight brontosauri, sauruses. Uh, if you were at the 64-65 World's Fair, you're probably saying a lot of this seems similar to Ford's Magic Skyway or even Primeval World, the diorama that was at the Disneyland Railroad. They took a lot of those influences and brought them in here as well. Again, incredibly realistic based on the information they had at that time. And it, yeah, it goes it leads all the way through to the end when when as you're moving to theater two, there are even fossils in the cave that you're that you're living in, showing this is what has happened. You know, this is the the passage of time for the dinosaurs. And they did they they were painstakingly with the Stegosaurus and the and the you know I'm going to mess this name up, but the Ornithomimus, <laughs> and and that's one of those pieces that changed in such a really a critical way. Um, Early on, this was so realistic, and there was there was life and death, and you know, in the balance everywhere in this pavilion. And some of that has maybe gone, you know, toned down a little bit now. Uh, but it was it was one of those, there were teachable moments everywhere within this pavilion. Yeah, and and teachable moments is is a great thing. We should sort of step back a little bit. We talked a lot about the diorama theater one when you the first theater that you entered had an animated film, and it really was about how these fossil fuels are formed. Uh, they explain to you how coal and oil are formed, sort of setting the groundwork for what you're going to see in the diorama, explaining it to you how uh, these things become fossilized and become gas after pressure and, and whatnot. And they, you see the dinosaurs and the volcanoes in the film, and it really sort of foreshadows that primeval world-like diorama that you're going to be led into next. Again, you think that that theater is the entire pavilion again, and then those screens rise up and you pass underneath them. You're, you're right. And, you know, they used a multi-plane camera for this, which was the first time they had pulled one out in about 25 years. And for those who never had the, the experience of seeing Theater One, it always reminds me a bit of the Takata and Fugue and the Rite of Spring se- segments from Fantasia, because you had the dinosaurs and then you had these almost abstract elements showing you how things were compressing and how this dense plant matter was going to give way to fossil fuels. And the interesting thing, too, you mentioned, it was the largest multiplane film ever created. And if, you, if you're a fan of Disney animation, you know the name multiplane. And it's a technology that was developed back by Ub Iwerks, where they have multiple sort of frames of scenes that are brought up and down. And you see it back in films like Snow White and Pinocchio. They actually had to adjust their drawing and inking, inking and painting techniques in order to accommodate the size of the screen. So they took this very basic concept. Um, you know, I think again, Pepper's Ghost. These basic concepts that are tweaked and improved upon, but still remain r- retain that central element and use it on a, a much grander scale here in Theater One. Right. I mean, they had an animation crew of 50 people working with a multiplane camera. It was directed by Jack Boyd. But it was. It was so large scale. They had to make sure everything was so flawlessly done because it would be scrutinized to the nth degree the way way that the film was going to be going through. Yeah, absolutely. And again, you... It's a reveal moment when you start going into, you know, if you've never been on the attraction before, when you see these, the three-dimensional animation come to life. And again, you, you've got the sounds and you've got the visuals and all the things we alluded to. Um, it, it's a wonderful surprise and it's, it's a great part of, and for a lot of people like you as a kid, 
it was the most important or most interesting part of the attraction. And then again, you go into a second theater, which is actually not, there's two theaters in the pavilion. That's why it's so large. The second theater, Theater 2, sits right next to Theater 1. And this is where you saw a second film, a longer film about present-day energy sources. And this is where you saw scenes from, you know, solar facilities and oil rigs and satellites looking for fossil fuels. You saw everything from the Trans-Alaskan Pipeline, Saudi oil wells, um, fusion energy reactions, and even the solar panels that were analogous to the ones on the roof of Universe of Energy. You're right. You would see like these huge fields in California and you know, you'd be in the Middle East, you'd be in the North Sea where, where they were just trying to find the next step in the evolution of energy production. And you know, it, it spawned one of those great terms, the ride on sunshine, because they brought back the message of you're living in, with this energy now with the solar panels and the ride vehicles. And this is why this pavilion, to a certain degree, pardon the pun, is evergreen, because the problems that we were facing in 82 are even more pronounced in 2010, because we haven't, you know, we don't have our jetpacks, we don't have this uh, unending supply of resources, it's even more of an issue now. So the films that they show in Theater 1 and Theater 2 are as relevant today as they were back then. Um, Certainly they've been updated, and we'll, we'll talk about some of those changes, but I think that's why... Uh, the pavilion itself continues to be so important. You know, things like Spaceship Earth, communication has changed radically from 82 when it opened. If you tried to go through, you know, 1982 Spaceship Earth now, you'd be like, yikes, this is the final scene of the Carousel of Progress because we've blown so far past that. And, and with the energy, yeah, you're right. We haven't come near that far. Uh, you know, and I can remember a scene at the end of, of the film in theater too, you know, where it showed a city that looked like something from Horizons and talking about in 20 years, this was going to be 20 years down the road, we were, you know, we were going to be having X amount of, you know, I think it was a quarter of the energy would come from renewable sources. And we've got, and we have not yet gotten there. And so it is, Universal Energy retains a message that is still critical to today's life. Yeah, it, it's almost like the, you know, you think about the films from the 50s and the 60s where they talk about, what life was going to be like in 1999. And, and this had the same kind of thing because the final scene is this rocket blasting off into space saying, yeah, 20 years from now we'll be mining in space and you know, driving all these energy sources and yet to happen. Yeah, and you're right. And that space shuttle really, really hit home. You know, it's like we'll be traveling everywhere. These cities, you know, traffic's not going to be a thing of the past. And it is, it's very much like that flashback to the 50s in or future of the 50s in horizons where it's like oh you know we're now living it with epcot with these films from back then that didn't necessarily you know we didn't necessarily catch up as quick as we thought we would and again too ryan again i think for a lot of us we alluded to this in the beginning the hallmark of pretty much all of the original epcot center pavilions were these memorable songs you know we all still sing journey to imagination we all I still sing Listen to the Land. Um, oh, gotta love that song. You know, Tomorrow's Child and, and Fun to be Free. Universe of Energy, again, not doesn't have just one. It has two theme songs. It has Universe of Energy, and it also has Energy You Make the World Go Round. That was the first song. That was sang by John Joyce, who sang it, who also sang the Universe of Energy theme song, which was written by 
Academy Award winners, you're probably not going to know the names Al Kasha and Joel Hirshhorn, but you, I remember The Towering Inferno and The Poseidon Adventure. When I was doing the research for this, the names didn't sound familiar, but I immediately recognized the music when I saw that it was Towering Inferno and Poseidon Adventure. So, yeah, I, I, I'm familiar. So they, they, they clearly stepped the music up a notch here. They knew that that was going to be, one, for these people taking naps, a way to wake them up, and two, a, a real way to carry the message out. I won't even talk about my crying still when I see Poseidon Adventure and, you know, she hands <laughs> the medal to Manny. Anyway, um, after this finale, you, you again, you're the brilliant thing. And you don't realize it, Ryan, as it's happening, is that your cars have moved from these side-by-side two rows to a single-file train. In that second theater, they come back again to that original position. They're turning in unison with the wiping of the film in front of you. But when you come out, uh, again, it's sort of, you don't come out into a, a gift shop, but you come out into sort of a post-show area. Not quite as grand, maybe as World of Motion, but Exxon has displays here. And I know, Ryan, I, I would bet my life on the fact that you still have in an acid-free plastic bag your Universe of Energy comic book with Mickey you and Goofy. You believe it. <laughs> I was hoping we were going to talk about the Mickey and Goofy comic book. You have to have one, and that's that's kind of like your geek cred card right there. Exactly, exactly. Because if you don't know about it, then you know. And it was really great because it would it walk you kind of through the attraction, and but it was a way to carry home with you. And for all the little bits and pieces that you missed in the in the movie, and in these two in theater one and theater two, the same notes were kind of in here, and you could you could pull it out at home and go, oh right, I remember them talking about this and seeing what was down the road. And think about it. It's very interesting because, remember, Epcot Center opens in 1982. What do you not see there? Characters. Mickey Mouse, Goofy are nowhere to be seen because Epcot was going to be the much more serious place. and was supposed to be a very distinct park from the Magic Kingdom. I think, arguably, Universe of Energy was probably the most adult-oriented, uh, humor-free of all the attractions. Yet, when you came out, the giveaway was specifically intended for children and guys like us who would grab a comic book to sort of carry that experience forward. So the kids were able to take that away. And that's the only place I can think of, Ryan, that had something like that with Mickey Mouse connected to these Epcot Center attractions. No, you're right. And I think this kind of goes back to something we have talked about, you know, a couple of shows ago when we did the Living Seas. With Finding Nemo, you know, whatever keeps kids interested in these in this concept and in these ideas is is great for the is great for Epcot and great for the for the message. And we've talked um, on an earlier show. I talked about Communicore and how different Communicore was from what we currently see as in interventions. What Communicore was and what Universe of Energy that I think may arguably be done possibly better than any other pavilion was. They wanted you to continue the experience beyond the pavilion, continue this journey through learning about energy in a much more hands-on, interactive environment. So they wanted you to go to the energy exchange over at Communicore East, where there were many, many huge interactive displays where you could literally get hands-on and learn about nuclear energy and see this giant oil rig. I mean, a huge scale model of an oil rig. Learn about synthetics and there were displays again 1982 the touchscreen technology was brand new and it was huge and there were many many of these touchscreens around 
the Exxon. This was very much branded an Exxon exhibit. And we talked about you know the weenies of Epcot Center a while you know earlier on the show, but they had it here. You know they had the the wind the wind catcher. They had the neon house. They had the oil rig. They had the the giant piece of shale that you could look at. The kinetic sculpture. They, they wanted you to come in and see what they had to say. And you're right. The touchscreen was there, and interacting with solar panels was there. It was just a way to to make it a more tangible learning experience. Yeah, and I'll put a link in the show notes to an earlier show where we talked about Communicore. I also wrote an article about Communicore for Celebrations Magazine, excuse the shameless plug. But it was a very, very different place. You know, right now, Interventions has a number of large-scale exhibits, very much interactive. Um, Certainly some are geared towards kids. Communicore is a much different place. It was much um, more open. Much, much brighter. I mean, the walls were pretty much all glass. It was sort of floor-to-ceiling glass. We talked about the idea of having sort of a a people-mover system going through a second floor of Communicore at the time. But there were many, many different exhibits, and it was something that was geared to, and I know in my case, kept people there. I mean, I wanted to, I think it was almost less about learning about energy than it was being a geeky kid playing with these new technologies. I mean, remember, this is sort of the advent of the computer age, and this was the place to see it and touch it and play with it. Absolutely, and I can remember spending hours upon hours till I was dragged out of Communicore, <laughs> you know, playing with the different exhibits, whether it was the energy exhibit or watching Expo Robotics or all of these little pieces just mesmerized me, and I, I wanted to touch, I wanted to play, I wanted to know, I wanted to take home with me. It, yeah, and you're absolutely right. It, you know, maybe not as bright as it is today. You still see, you know, now we're getting a few pieces back that look similar to what we knew with the Communicore and, and Interventions, uh, but much, much more tangible back then. And two, this was, it held its own for more than a decade. For about 12 years, it remained really unchanged completely. Fast forward 1995, Future World is starting to go through its first sort of more... Uh, major refurbishment and updating and refreshing. Again, you're talking about future world, these future technologies. This is where the the feedback of Universe of Energy having this reputation as being too academic or too educational, having no real entertainment value, which is what, you know, Walt, if we're carrying forward Walt's ideals, Walt wanted to entertain first and hope you learned along the way. Universe of Energy had this, well, there really is no entertainment value other than my geeky kid Ryan wanting to go and see the audio-animatronic dinosaurs. So they close for the first major refurb, and I think that, Ryan, was a big part of the goal, was to make this, um, as part of this upcoming 15th anniversary, make this much more entertaining. And and they, they certainly made it entertaining. They brought in big name people in Alex Trebek, Ellen DeGeneres, and Bill Nye, the science guy, to, to reinvigorate but still bring that message of energy across. Yeah, and it sort of foreshadowed, you know, Ellen had a show on ABC, which obviously Disney eventually purchases. But you're right, they bring in, and we've talked about this in the past, they bring in big names. They bring in this fun theme. Okay, now we're going to make it a game show. We're going to make it the most popular game show on TV, Jeopardy, that everybody knows, everybody around the world can relate to Jeopardy. They know who Ellen is. They know who Alex Trebek is. So there is this much more relevance, maybe, for people than they had before. 
they also take the opportunity to upgrade the theaters. They refresh the audio state. They upgrade the audio system. They refresh some of the scenes. Unfortunately, we lose that Radoc pre-show. They now just install five regular sort of movie screens in the pre-show area. And I know for a lot of people, uh, obviously much more easy to be vocal now with the internet and forums and Facebooks, but a lot of people were, were upset because that was an important part uh, and, and an entertaining part of the show for them. Absolutely. And, you know, it's like I said earlier, I came for the dinosaurs, but after, you know, that first viewing, I was hooked on that pre-show and watching these panels just unfold this story in front of me. And to come in and just have five panels across the screen, it felt very much more like a typical film that you would see anywhere else in Walt Disney World. Yeah, and they made some other changes throughout the theaters as well. So there were originally these gold curtains that lifted that brought you into the next scene. They're now sort of uh, just these black curtains. There was also this giant wall of mirrors that really gave you a sense that you were in sort of a 360-degree experience. Um, All these mirrored walls gave it a 360-degree effect and sort of that endless space because of the reflecting of the light. If you think sort of in the descent of Spaceship Earth with all those purple lights, you got a, a different sense, but that same type of effect. All those mirrored walls were gone. So it, it looked sort of, it used to look sort of almost like a third room or a third theater off in the distance. Now again, it just had those screens. So you lost a, a few things uh, along the way as well uh, that I think were some of the hallmarks of the original show. And, and even moving into the dioramas, you, you, know, you lose things like the attack of uh, some of the dinosaurs or the, the dinosaur who is really effectively dying in the mud, lava mud pit is now in a little grassy area and he's spitting water on the guests. You know, they, they kind of tone down the dramatics of the message in order to, to bring people back in. Yeah, I, I think um, you gain and you lose in the diorama scene. So, you know, theater two, you have a new film. It carries over a lot of the elements of the original, but in the diorama scene, they do hide a lot of those effects. It's a lot greener, a lot more dense. Uh, you now have the Ellen figure, who at the time, she was an A100, which at the time was the most advanced audio-animatronics figure. Actually, the only time you see Ellen in audio-animatronics format, just one time in Universe of Energy. Um, but more importantly, we, we hinted to this before, the dinosaurs have been completely repainted, have new colors. And again, they base this on more recent discoveries and information. So these tans and browns have been replaced with reds and oranges and stripes and spots, giving much more, and again, we're guessing really as to what the dinosaurs look like, but more of a sense of realism with the use of the painting schemes on them. And this is, to, at least to, to my eye, it's very much, this is a 96, a precursor to what you're going to see with Dinosaur and the Boneyard in Animal Kingdom later on, where they, they've used the science to, again, yeah, upgrade and get the right patterns of the flesh. And so that it was as accurate as is humanly possible. Yeah, and there were, there were subtle changes outside the pavilion as well. They removed a lot of those mosaic tiles at the rear of the pavilion, which really you can only see as you come uh, via monorail. They changed the paint scheme a little bit. Again, it's 96, so instead of the reds and the oranges, they had sort of a rainbow 
sort of stripes on the outside in between the tiles. But there were issues, as always, I'm, I'm thinking test track. There were issues as they're getting ready to open. So they close um, the pavilion saying that they want to get it open in time for the summer. And Ellen's energy crisis is supposed to up, uh, open that summer. Again, I think the use of the word crisis was very important and interesting. I think, again, it was reflecting of the time. They don't make it. They don't make it in time for the summer. They missed that deadline. It's going to open in the fall. So you've got Universe of Energy down. You've got World of Motion down. Not a lot going on uh, on that side of Epcot. Yeah, there really was not a whole lot of draw, you know, and this is one of those things I think for people like you and I who who love Horizons, it, it, it saved Horizon for a little bit longer. You know, we were able to keep some attractions over there for just just a fraction longer because there wasn't a whole lot of draw to, to Future World East in that day and age. Yeah, and so they, in order to sort of compensate, remember, this is a people eater. This is taken in 1,200 guests at a time, you, uh, 600 guests at a time, you could have 1,200 people really in the building at once they reopen it the show's not finished they reopen it in june of 96 now it they still call it universe of energy they haven't changed the the name yet they've got the old show but new technology so there was a lot of mishmash going on the narration originally didn't match up to what was going on in the theater there was lots of dark and black spaces for a while so if you think now as you're transitioning from scene to scene where you have the KNRG radio going on, that was just black. There was just sort of nothing going on there. Uh, again, those Radox screens were already gone. So that same Radox show was being projected on a flat screen, really lost the impact of it. You lost that 3D effect, and it almost looked odd trying to project these multicolored squares that should have had a dimensional aspect to it on these flat screens. Um, Fortunately, it closes a couple of months later, closes September 1st, reopens on September 15th for like a day as Ellen's Energy Crisis. They changed the name almost immediately to Ellen's Energy Adventure. Yeah, it was. this was a very tumultuous time for Universe of Energy. And it, it was the crisis maybe didn't, you know, didn't resonate with people as much as they had hoped. It sounded a little bit scary. They were trying to to again entertain a little bit more, get a more family atmosphere. So it turned they turned the name to Adventure. You know, you get this billboard out front with Bill Nye and Ellen DeGeneres, and and you know all is well with the world. Yeah, it's like the whole Revenge of the Jedi thing going on. So you had to change the name. But you're right because Crisis sounds like e yikes, what's going on? Something's going to go horribly wrong in there. Uh, obviously, the theme and the story changes dramatically uh you now have a a real story that's being told we've talked about these stars ellen degeneres bill nye the science guy again you've got that relation for young kids you've got jamie lee curtis you've got alex trebek and the pre-show very much has that humorous aspect to it almost that interactive aspect because it looks as though ellen is is literally talking to the audience hi and welcome to the universe of energy how are you No need to answer. You know, you're probably surprised to see me here, aren't you? But then there's probably a lot of places you'd be surprised to see me when you think about it. If you were driving in your car, for instance, okay? Close your eyes. You're in your car. No, close your eyes in the car. But right now, think about it. You're in your car. You're driving. And then all of a sudden, from the back seat, I just pop up and go, hey! 
<laughs> you just whack me in the head, wouldn't you? That would be, that wouldn't be nice. But then it wouldn't be nice for me to do that to you. How'd I get in your car anyway? Can you, did you lock the car? Maybe it was your fault. Maybe I'm just teaching you a lesson. But the point is to see me here as a spokesperson for the universe of energy. I mean, that's crazy. You know, I mean, I'm an expert on a lot of things. You know that. I know that. But uh, not a lot of things. A few things. But energy. I mean, there was a time I could care less about it. And then suddenly everything changed. One day I was sitting in my apartment. Right. She's having her flashbacks. And, and it, it was it very much hubris. Time flies. And soon you're in the theater at this point. Yeah, and this is where you really get a sense of the upgrade in the audio technology because as they're going through, this is really mostly about the Big Bang, this formation of the universe, the, the beginning of our story. And uh, the ding-dang, the Big Bang, the uh, ding-dang. you get this this very deep sort of sense-around kind of experience. And, and that harkens back even to the 1982 technology of these sound walls. Again, this... The booming effect of the Big Bang is tremendous if you're in that theater, so much so that Ellen and Bill Nye are wearing you know, the headsets so that they don't heal, that they block out the sound. But with those soundproofing walls, you would never know it wherever else you are in the, th- in the experience. Yeah, and, and the other thing, too, that I like is, like we see Disney doing throughout um, not just Epcot but other places uh, in, the, in the parks, there are – Celebrity cameos, or people relative to the time. So you can hear Willard Scott uh, broadcasting on KNRG, obviously K Energy Radio. Five million BC. Now for a look at our weather. Willard? Okay. Our ultra-extended forecast calls for decreasing dinosaur population, followed by a sudden growth in those tiny little creatures the size of mice that we call mammals. Aren't they cute? Uh, if you look real carefully for just like a brief minute... Michael Richards, Kramer from Seinfeld, is the caveman who discovers fire. Even with his his trademark outcry of <laughs> you know just wild man, uh, yeah, you get you get him for just that half a second. Um, sports fans will know Chris Berman, and he does his back, 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 back as he's talking about us going back in time. And now to the sports report live from the Mastodome. Mammals dominate the earth. Mammals dominate the earth. The big dinosaurs have been shut out. They're back, 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 gone, extinct. The big dinosaurs have left the planet. The mammals have shut them out in a major planetary upset. Near the end, I love the Johnny Gilbert narration. If you listen real carefully, um, and, and listen, I, I went home and I, of course, tried it like everybody else did. He says, if you'd like to have your own Energy Nightmare, place a self-addressed stamped envelope under your pillow or check us out on the web at energynightmare.game. Well, you know I went home and went to energynightmare.game to find that it does not exist. Nothing. Right. And, <laughs> so, and the other piece is that there's a great you know, homage to, to the original attraction where Johnny Gilbert says, energy, you make the world go round. Yeah, and I love that. I love sort of them making reference to those songs because we lost those. We lost those theme songs here. And, and I think the... The ambient and the background loop for Ellen, she's got a great theme, but it's not you make the world go round. You can't, it, you know, you can't sing to it. You can't dance to it. Yeah, it's, it doesn't have that swing. But what this does and, and the reason why this change is made is because they get the same message across in a much more informative, comical kind of way that I think didn't resonate with people beforehand. 
I think you're right. I, you know, it, I can remember for several years before the refurbishment where people just weren't attending this attraction in the droves that it first had when it opened. And now, while it's not back to those again, long lines out to almost world of motion, you, you have crowds waiting outside, wanting to get in, wanting this entertainment value. And hopefully, you know, if, if Walt's you know, smiling down on them, they're taking something home with them. Yeah, and the attraction hasn't changed much really since that last refurbishment. 2003 uh, brought us the Exxon Mobil merger. They change a the sign. 2004, the sponsorship ends. 2009, they do make some minor upgrades, probably invisible to most guests. The exterior paint scheme does go back to that red and orange sort of gradation going from front to back. The ride system is upgraded. Really, you won't see it for the most part unless the system breaks down. The, the sort of reboot and recycling of the attraction takes much less time, so the attraction is not down for extended lengths of time. But my question to you is this. You know, how does it hold up today? You know, what is the, the re-rideability factor of Universe of Energy? Certainly the first-time guest is going to look down at their map. They're going to see this pavilion and have to go see it because you just need to see everything, I think, the first time you go. Is this one, Ryan, that you think people do or should come back and see over and over again? I think it's one of these I go back, obviously, and see it over and over again just for, you know, nostalgia. You've you got to leave you and I out of the argument because we're, well, we have asterisks next, score, next to our name. <laughs> because we said enough content and go, what can we do? Universe of Energy. Um, no, because we'll go I, through and we'll say, oh, did you see they changed the paint scheme on the Brachiosaurus? And we'll have to go ride through four or five times to find it. Do you notice that its arm now looks like it's waving at Yeah, I know. Yeah, <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> Um, did you notice the moon didn't come out? Um, <laughs> but no, I think where the original universe of energy was dated by saying in 20 years we're going to have this, you know, energy is going this renewable energy is going to be coming out, creating this this epic cityscape. Whereas that got dated in it to the point where they had to change it. I almost feel like with Ellen and Bill Nye the Science Guy, you've you've created this dated sense again where there is still repeatability to it, but it's much less than it could be. Yeah, so, you know, and I was going to ask you, does including people like an Ellen, like a Bill Nye the Science Guy, who still, look, Ellen's obviously still hugely popular here in 2010. Bill Nye is still relevant. He's still known to kids. But are they sort of marking that place in time? I think we talked about the timekeeper possibly doing that when they had boys to men in the background or even the people you know like Rhea Perlman from for cheers are they sort of locking it into that time and if so is it time for another upgrade again I, I think it is I think it maybe is time for another upgrade and I don't know that you, you use people who are who are recognizable you know you have Gary um oh I just you you have people all throughout these pavilions who are recognizable but in a sense, but in a role where they're not playing themselves, like Gary Sinise. Gary Sinise, thank you. That's the name I was thinking of. <laughs> Gary Sinise, Mission Space is, is effectively timeless as the Mission Control uh, operative. If you want to bring people in like that, you know, bring people like Ellen or Bill Nye in in these capacities. Give them a character to create. Give them a character to live that doesn't date you. Doesn't put you at okay, right? We're looking at you know Ellen in her wardrobe from 1996. Well, let me ask you this. Certainly because of the design of the building, barring 
completely just scrapping it and, and raising it, which I, I highly doubt would My happen. Heart be still. Yeah. Right. <laughs> the, the layout is going to remain the same. An initial theater with the rotating thing, going through the dioramas, coming out that second theater. You're still looking at probably a 45-minute show, which it remains to this day the same way it was when it first opened. So you kind of need to make sure you devote a full hour to Universe of Energy. Do you think that's something that detracts from it or makes it more attractive or less attractive? I think, especially with today, it makes it more attractive. And you're going to have naysayers who say, no, absolutely, it's a nap machine. But you look at how far we've come in energy and what, what new energies we've discovered and what new paths we've discovered. There's a lot to talk about. And I think an hour is, is a perfect time, kind of time frame to get this in, to get this entertaining in and bring something home with the people. You know, again, I don't recommend if you have to go bathroom jumping on the ride. <laughs> but otherwise, I think, I think the message carries enough weight to it that, it could, that an hour is easy to cover. Yes, and if you do have a child that does not like the dark or loud noises or big, scary dinosaurs, probably not the best attraction for the toddler. You need to judge your your children <laughs> accordingly. Uh, fortunately, my kids were fascinated by dinosaurs who would sleep, but not every child is the same. And once you get on that car, that moving theater, you're there for a good 45 minutes. And I think... In this day and age of cramming it as much as we can, do it, you know, hit the big attractions and move on, move on, go, 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 because there's so much to do now. And Walt, remember, look, when this opened, there was Magic Kingdom and there was Epcot, and that was pretty much it. You had River Country, you know, you, you started to have the advent of things outside the parks, but that now you've got four parks, two water parks, downtown Disney area. There's a lot to do. For some people, they may look and say, I don't know, man, an hour out of my day, that's a big chunk of time. I could knock out two big attractions. My kid would rather go see Figment 2.5 and <laughs> you know Nemo than sit there for two movies and eight minutes of dinosaurs. And I'm just playing devil's advocate. No, you're absolutely right. And, and, and whatever the next incarnation, you know, and obviously hypothetical, it's the next incarnation. Um, they're going to have to knock it out the park to, in order to, to pull those guests in. But I, yeah, you're, you're not going to get the, the message across in, in really anything shorter than you know, 40, 45 minutes in, in that kind of an environment. And the tough thing, too, is that from a sponsorship perspective, again, not that I'm keeping up with, with updates on, tech, on energy technology, but we don't sort of have that next thing to showcase, I'm, I'm sure we've made advances in all these areas and wind power and so, but we're not there yet. You know, we've got hybrid vehicles, sure, but we're not quite at that. We haven't made that gigantic, you know, changing mankind breakthrough that they were thinking about in 1982. We're still in a crisis. You know, I don't think BP right. is going to come in and say, okay, here's a hundred million dollars. Let's try and, you know, rebrand our image and, and because there's not a lot to talk about that might be interesting for people. Um, to keep it no, now, you're right? It, it, I think for a lot of people, it's still the redheaded stepchild. I don't look at it that way, but I think maybe some people do. No, and, and you're absolutely right. And 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 who do you want presenting this message? You know, a big oil company, who obviously is one of those things that we're trying to maybe kind of phase out. You know, moving to these new technologies, are they going to want to put up the money to kind of say, "Hey, look, we're yesterday's news," or do you, or you know, and the technologies that are coming down the pipeline? probably aren't going to have the money that, that, that they need for a sponsorship. So it is. It's a, it's a quagmire to be in as to what the next step is. But it is. It's one of these attractions that 
people kind of look at and kind of sneer at and make jokes about. But but for, for people like you and me, and uh, it's it's always going to be a treasure. I agree, and I'm sure you know. And this is for those of you that miss energy, you make the world go round. If you listen to the background loop over by Spaceship Earth and by Interventions, you may just hear a nice little instrumental version of that song. Quick dispelling of a uh, of a question that I get all the time of rumor: It is not Tim Conway is not Albert Einstein. Tim Conway is yeah, not I get that Albert. Question. I get that question probably, too. Tim Conway uh, of Carol Burnett fame and, and certainly so many countless movies. A lot of there has been a um, an urban legend going around that it's Tim Conway who's Albert Einstein, but it actually is not him. The question is, who is it? I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, me either. I did try to find the answer though, and I can't find it. But I, I would, um, I, I would definitely like to hear from listeners about Universe of Energy. I'd like to know either what your memories are of it going back to '82. What do you think of it today? What do your kids think of it today? Can, should, will it be changed? If so, what would you like to see? And I'd like to kind of have people put their imagineering hats on if they could and give me the next incarnation of what this energy pavilion should be or what do you think of the changes over. I'd love to hear commentary about it. Please post in the show notes over at www.radio.com for this episode. Uh, I still believe, Ryan, that Universe of Energy embodies that original emphasis on future possibilities and I think that's why it remains relatively timeless in what its message is and the technologies that it's using. Um, I do still enjoy it from a geek perspective. My kids enjoy it from a dinosaur perspective. Uh, and I'm curious to see what the future brings. Yeah, to keep it simple, energy still makes the world go round. This is your chance to break out in song. I'm just saying. It's, it's in my head right now, it's, it's, <laughs> but it's not coming out. Well, if you want to hear Ryan sing or at least read some of his great work on his daily blog post, head on over to the Main Street Gazette. That's MainSTGazette.com for all of his great work there. And, of course, we are very, very pleased to have him be a regular contributor to Celebrations Magazine. You can check out his work there. And, Ryan, we've got to continue. We've got many more to go on our Epcot retrospective series as well as a few other trips on the Walt Disney World Wayback Machine up our sleeves. I can't wait to get started. Thanks again, buddy. No problem. That's going to do it for this week's show. Thanks so much for taking the time and tuning in this and every week. Thanks also to my friend and guest, Ryan Wilson. You can find him over at MainStreetGazette.com and articles from him in Celebrations Magazine. I want this conversation to continue with you. I'd love to hear your comments on the Universe of Energy Pavilion, your memories, future ideas, and more. 
visit the show notes over at www.radio.com and comment there. You can also email me with comments about the show or any questions you might have if you want me to answer them on the air to lou at www.radio.com. You can also call in with a voicemail at 888-703-2171 and be on the air. You can email me at factorfiction at www.radio.com for a chance to play Listener Fact or Fiction where I'll ask you 10 true or false trivia questions about Walt Disney World for a chance to win some prizes. Be sure and come by the site over at www.radio.com. Be part of the WDW Radio family and the community. Sign up for our newsletter. Follow me over on Twitter. I'm twitter.com slash Lumangelo. Join the WW Radio Facebook page at facebook.com slash WDW Radio. While you're on the site, you can join the forums, talk with other fans in a fun, friendly, safe environment. Be sure and also check out our daily blog posts, contests, photo galleries. You can also find all of our videos up there under the videos tab as well. And don't forget that if you are a new listener, you just found the show, all of the past episodes of WW Radio, including the videos, are available both in iTunes and on the website. So you can go back. Most of the shows are evergreen. The interviews, reviews, Wayback Machine, the history, trivia, reviews, everything else. uh, Pretty much applicable no matter when you listen. So again, go back, check out older shows, look in the show notes for some topics that might interest you. Also, while you're on the site and as the holidays approach, don't forget that you can order signed copies of my Walt Disney World trivia books and get the audio guides to Walt Disney World on CD or as instantly downloadable files. I currently have a special going on if you order the entire five-pack on CD. And just for listening to the show, I'll also give you a coupon code. If you use coupon code SANTA10, S-A-N-T-A, the number 10, when you check out, you'll save 10% if you order before December 24th. And of course, don't forget, if you want to get some Disney magic delivered right to your home or to give it a gift to somebody else, Celebrations Magazine can be found over at CelebrationsPress.com. It's a joint venture between Tim Foster from Guide to the Magic and myself. Each issue of the bi-monthly 84-page magazine is filled with articles and photos and reviews and games and so much more from people you know like Ryan Wilson and Jim Corcus, Steve Barrett from Hidden Mickey's, Lots, lots more. Again, check it out over at CelebrationsPress.com. There you can subscribe, order back issues, or find out how you can contribute to the magazine as well. Please be sure and join me every Wednesday night at 7.30 Eastern for the new WDW Newscast, where I do a live interactive news show covering Walt Disney World news. You can be a part of the broadcast and the discussion as we talk about the news real-time in the text chat room. Again, you visit www.newscast.com, 7.30 every Wednesday night. That's Eastern Time. You can be part of the conversation. If you can't make it to the live show and chat, please make sure you come by the WDW Radio YouTube channel. It's youtube.com slash WDW Radio. There I'll post the videos of each newscast, usually within an hour or two after the newscast is finished, so you can find all the Walt Disney World news right there on the YouTube channel. And please keep the conversation going. Let's keep the discussion going about the news and your thoughts and ideas in the comments section over at youtube.com slash Radio. A couple of quick reminders. Uh, again, I want to thank you all for nominating WDW Radio for Best Travel and Best Produced Podcast over at podcastawards.com. 
The voting process is going on now. It continues until December 15th. So if you can, I would sincerely appreciate if you can visit podcastawards.com every day and select WDW Radio in the best produced category. That's the top right column and best travel category. That's the bottom uh, right column as well. Be sure and enter your name and a valid email address as you're going to have to verify your vote via email. So right after you vote, look for an email from podcastawards.com. Click on the link in order to make your vote count. Again, you can vote once a day, every day, until December 15th. And I sincerely do appreciate all your help and support in voting. Again, it's podcastawards.com. Also want to give a huge thanks to everybody that came out to the December meet of the month and the 200th show celebration that we had on Sunday, December 5th over at Ariel's at the Beach Club. I am so incredibly grateful to everybody that took time out of their day, their weekend, their vacation, whatever it was, just to come by and say hello. And everybody also who got to watch in the box as well. I enjoyed watching you all meet each other, and I hope you enjoyed the location and the snacks, because it is always about the food and the prizes and the giveaways and the games and, of course, the conversations that I was happy to have with all of you as well. I also have to give a special thanks to Becky Mankin for making it possible. It was thanks to her generosity and our partnership and, of course, our friendship uh, that we were able to have such a wonderful celebration and a way for us to sort of say thank you to you for supporting and listening to the show for the past 199-plus episodes. And that's not why I recommend Mouse Fan Travel. Um, It's because of their service and the experiences that they give their clients. Listen, I was a client first. I still am. I'm grateful again uh, to them for their partnership and their friendship. But if you are planning a trip to Walt Disney World, Disneyland, Disney Cruise Line, Adventures by Disney, I give MEI and Mouse Fan Travel over at mousefantravel.com, my highest recommendation. And again, I am grateful beyond words um, that to all of you that you continue to let me share my passion with you every week. So if you weren't there at the meet or weren't able to uh, join us in the box, that, that really was the message of the meet and the, uh, the 200 show celebration. So thank you once again. Looking forward to other meets. January's meet is going to be over Marathon Weekend. It's going to be Saturday, January 8th. I'll have some more information, exact location and time planned sometime early in the day on Saturday after the half marathon runners have had a chance to finish go back get cleaned up and get over to the Magic Kingdom February's meet is going to be uh, probably before and maybe even after the cruise and of course there's still time to join us on the WW Radio cruise we had some people sign up just in the last couple of days leaving February 27th on a four day cruise aboard the all new Disney Dream for more information for questions to get a free no obligation quote visit www.radiocruise.com if you're coming come by the forums in the cruise section lots of discussions going on lots of questions being answered as well and if you're looking for shirts and logo gear you can visit www radio cruise for a link over to cafe press if you are visiting walt disney world during the holiday season make sure you go by and visit the walt disney world swan and dolphin it's recently been named santa's favorite resort um, as he's getting ready to prepare for the christmas season He's taking a little bit of time, taking a break over at uh, the Walt Disney World Swan and Dolphin. I actually stayed there this past weekend, loved my incredibly comfortable heavenly bed, the 24-hour food that's available downstairs at Peekaboo, 
But again, it is decorated for the holidays. Lots of special events going on up until Christmas Eve. Santa and Mrs. Claus are there. It's decorated for the holidays. There's a full calendar of events, tree lighting, uh, crafts, things to do for the kids. And remember, you don't need to even stay at the resort in order to take advantage of them. You'll find a link right on the homepage of www.radio.com or visit santasfavoriteresort.com. A couple of other quick reminders. Uh, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago we just we founded the WDW Radio Running Team. So if you are going to go down to Walt Disney World for Marathon Weekend, going to participate in any of the running events like the half or the full marathon, or if you just want to go and cheer and be part of the running team and help raise money for the Make-A-Wish Foundation through our Dream Team project, you can be a part of the WDW Radio Running Team. Along the way, we're going to be sharing information and experiences about the races, advice for the weekend events, preparation, motivational stories, the progress we've made, and all the while raising money for the Make-A-Wish Foundation. We're also going to have team meets over Marathon Weekend. We're going to have, uh, if you're going to be there cheering, we're going to have organizers together along the race route, cheering on not just the running team, but all the runners. I'm going to put a link in this week's show notes where you can find out more information, find out how to join. All you need to do is contribute $35 to cover your membership materials, including your team tech shirt, uh, sort of one of those moisture-wicking running shirts, headband, membership certificate, all the shipping costs, and just commit $100 uh, to raise for the Make-A-Wish Foundation through the Dream Team Project. Again, I'll put all the information in, but if you do want to order shirts for yourself or your family, if you're running or cheering on the sidelines, they need to be ordered by December 14th. So again, I'll put the information in this week's show notes. Also, don't forget, I announced uh, just a couple of weeks ago our Adventures by Disney trip. And if you're looking to go to the D23 Expo from August 19th through the 21st at the Anaheim Convention Center in 2011, we are going to have a six-day, five-night tour, an Adventures by Disney backstage magic tour that includes going backstage at Jimmy Kimmel Live, touring the Jim Henson Company studio, getting a private tour of Walt Disney Imagineering and the Walt Disney Studios, some of Hollywood's famous landmarks. We'll go behind the scenes at Disneyland, tour the El Capitan Theater, meet a puppeteer from the Creature Shop at Jim Henson Studios, character breakfast, lots of other experiences at Disneyland and DCA. We have reserved the entire tour for WW Radio listeners, but the event is almost sold out. Um, for, again, I just announced it a couple of weeks ago. So if you are interested, look in this week's show notes for more information. As I said, there's always lots more going on here over at WW Radio. Lots more things I'm getting ready to announce over the next few weeks and months. So definitely stay tuned. Again, I am truly grateful for you guys taking the time and tuning in this and every week. As always, my friends, if you like the show, and I hope that you do, please help spread the word. Let others know about it. Tweet out that you're listening. Share the link on Facebook. Come by if you like. Review the show and or the free WW Radio iPhone app over on iTunes. And whether I've met you this or any other weekend in the parks or anywhere else or not, you are my friends, and I am so truly grateful that next week we will be celebrating the 200th episode of WW Radio and uh, for taking the time for 200 episodes and the videos and the live broadcasts and everything else. I, um, I am grateful beyond words that you continue to let me share my passion with you each and every week. So until next time, take those first steps towards pursuing your passion and following your dreams. And once you do, always, always, 
keep moving forward. Thanks again, everybody. Have a great week. See ya. Lewis, this is your pal, Carrie, from Douglasville, Georgia. I just wanted to let you know that I am a big, big fan. I I discovered your podcast in August, and I've been listening rapidly to every single episode, and, uh, and I just caught up with you today, so I figured I had to call and leave you a voicemail. I'll be going down to the world with my wife and my little girl in, uh, in December on the 12th, so I'm just going to miss you. But, but I tell you what, I've, I've really become a big fan of the show, and if you could do me one solid favor, Louie, we'd just be do like three shows a day now on because you have kept me company at work all day long, every day for these last few months, and I've really enjoyed it so much. Thanks a lot, and uh, we'll see you in the world. Bye. Hi, Lou. This is Sharon from the suburbs of Cleveland. And I'm catching up on some shows, and I have to say I loved the Alan Menken show, um, 196. And I have to say it must be a humbling experience for you to be able to interview these great people. And I look forward to seeing Tangled with all the kids. And I have to put, and I will put on my... Christmas wish list, uh, The Vault of Walt, and Celebrations Magazine. So hopefully I will get those in my stocking this Christmas. Thank you again for everything that you do. Bye-bye. Hey, Lou, it's Jay from Jersey. Just wanted to say big congrats on getting nominated for Best Produced and Best Travel Podcast by uh, podcastawards.com. I'll be going there every day from the 1st through the 15th and voting for your show. Congrats again. Hey, Lou. Ronnie B. from Birmingham, Alabama. Always enjoying the show. Thanks for doing what you do. Uh, Just picked up Epic Epic Mickey. Fantastically fun. Very cool references within the game. Very very fun to play for anybody that uh, enjoys uh, some Disney history even. But uh, thanks for doing what you do. Always enjoying the show. Thanks, Lou. Hi, Lou. This is Michael and Donna Nyland from Sacramento, California. We're here at the uh, Magic Kingdom tonight uh, at the Mickey's Very Merry Christmas Parade, and we're just enjoying it. I just wanted to thank you and uh, just listen to all your shows and and just kind of re- listen. And it's, we just took it out uh, more listen to the holiday you know tour, not to all do all the rides and all the attractions. And it's been a great week and. Just wanted to say, you know, it's just great have, uh, having the holidays here at the Magic Kingdom and, and Epcot and Animal Kingdom and in the Hollywood Studios. Anyway, have a very, merry Christmas and a happy new year. Bye. Hey, Lou. We're here enjoying the Holiday Wishes Fireworks Spectacular, I believe, at the same time you are. Wednesday, December 2nd. So congratulations on show 200. Hope you enjoy the holidays. Have a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And continued success from the world's happiest place, Disney World. This is Mike in Chicago wishing you a very Merry Christmas. 